Good to see your faces this morning. Good to see you all didn't get blown away last night by that wind. Let's um, give our God thanks. Let's be praying for the families that, um, that are dealing with a lot of destruction this morning. And let's pray as we turn to God's Word. Father, we, we thank You for this day that we can come and we can worship You together. We thank You for the opportunity to gather together with other saints, to sing praises to Your name, to offer up our prayers, to study Your Word, to live th- these, these truths out in our lives. We thank You for fellowship. We thank You for, um, we thank you for Your love. We thank You for Your Son, Jesus Christ, who became a man who dwelt among us and became the perfect High Priest who now makes intercession for us today as He sits at the right hand of God the Father. Father, we do pray for those uh, across our state that um, they got hit by uh, those tornadoes yesterday afternoon and evening. We pray for families that lost loved ones. Pray for families who lost their homes and their, their belongings. Uh, we do pray that uh, You would surround them with Your people. They would know the the love of Jesus Christ as a result of your church being the church. We pray that you would bring comfort to those who are grieving and that uh, you would bring strength to those who are faint-hearted. As we turn our attention this morning to your word, I pray that you would teach us. I pray that you would open up our eyes so that we would see what's before us written on these pages and open our ears so that we would hear these things. But Father, I pray that you would open our minds as well, that your spirit would enlighten us so that we would understand the truths that we see here. And then most of all, we pray that you would soften our hearts. We pray that you would um, make us soft towards sin, that we would run from it, that we would hate our sin, and that we would love to be like Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is one who understands our weaknesses, and we thank you that he intercedes for us today. But teach us, we pray and make us into His image. It's in Jesus' name we pray and ask these things. Amen. Well, you know, most of us have applied for a job at one point or another. Fill out applications, we write resumes, perhaps you've put together some sort of portfolio. And then eventually, after looking at the requirements for a job, and after looking at all the qualifications of whether you're appropriate for this job posting or not, you go in for the interview. And they ask you questions, and they're going to compare you with other applicants to decide whether you are the whether you are the one who best meets the criteria that they're looking for. And so, if you came to me for a job, for example, and I told you from the beginning that there are four primary qualifications that I'm looking for, and let's just say, for example, that I needed these four things. And I said to you, number one, I need somebody who's able to move and carry large objects. You need to be able to move something that's 50 to 60 pounds uh, on a uh, regular basis, multiple times an hour. Number two, you need to be able to keep track of inventory, so you need to be able to count accurately. You need to be able to record data, number three. That is, you need to be able to write clearly so that somebody that comes after you is able to communicate the same information that you've been collecting through the day. And then fourth, you need to be able to communicate plainly with other people. This is a job that that where teamwork is required, where conversation is required, and you're going to need to work with the people that are your coworkers, and you're going to need to be able to work with people who are our our companies. Business partners, would those qualifications you say be pretty clearly laid out? Some basics. And the qualifications are laid out for you. And then if I asked you how you stack up, you would respond in that interview and say, well, here's, here's where I'm at. And let's just say, for example, today you said, you know, my, my doctor says that I'm only supposed to lift anything up to 10 pounds. I can't lift anything else after that. I'm the person for your job, but here's my waiver, and you have to make accommodations for me because I have special needs. And so um, you're going to have to have somebody else do the heavy lifting. And, and quite honestly, I never really did well with math, and so someone else is going to need to do the counting. I'll write it down. Um, but I hate penmanship, and so as long as I can use my cell phone, uh, I can record the data and somebody else can write it down in the book. And then, of course, one of my strengths is that I'm an introvert, so the team is going to have to have a specific yes or no questions for me to answer. At that point, you think I would probably say you are the right person for the job, correct? <laughs> Only if you're in politics. Now, if you were doing the hiring, would you say that that's a person for the job? Probably not. 
but the qualifications are very clear. And so the person either meets the qualifications or they don't. And you're going to typically pass on that person. Well, allow me to change the job offer a little bit. Uh, government has, has, is, has a necessary role in society, and all of us play a part in interviewing the candidates, and then we cast our vote. We look at their strengths, we look at their weaknesses, we look at how they're going to represent us, and then we go to the polling place. And most of the time, we, we choose individuals, uh, our goal is to choose individuals who we want to represent us in making and enforcing laws. And their, their qualities and qualifications that we ought to be looking for. For example, those who go to Washington, D.C. ought to be able to identify with us. Um, they, they need to be in a position that they can rightfully represent us. They need, to be, they need to do so with honesty, with integrity, with empathy, and then with strength so that they can stand against those who make and enforce laws that would do us harm or that would be in the interests of others but not of us. And so you want somebody that knows you, who walks life with you, and, and that's typically what we look for when we vote for those positions. But what oftentimes happens in positions of power? How do we choose those people? Great actor. I liked that movie he was in. Or... Or I remember when he played football, man, he could catch, man, he could run fast. And so we elect these actors and athletes and popular people because they, not because they actually know our needs, but because we liked a movie they were in or we saw a clip of them catching a football. And we vote to elect our leaders not on the basis oftentimes of actual qualifications, but based on their likability or based on their smooth sounding promises that they make, which you know that they never intend to fulfill oftentimes. We want them to represent the poor and the destitute of society, but we elect people who have no idea what it feels like to have nothing. We want them to represent the oppressed, but we end up choosing people who only advance their own interests, and so on it goes. You get the idea. In Hebrews chapter 5, uh, it, it presents us with an interview. What Hebrews chapter 5 does is it says, here's the qualifications for a specific position, and then here's the interview of the one who you need to decide as a Christian or somebody who is investigating Christianity, does this person meet those qualifications like nobody else? The author of Hebrews is going to set up the job. He's going to give us a list of the necessary qualifications for the position, and then he's going to introduce us to, guess who? Jesus and show us how Jesus perfectly met those qualifications. And in keeping with the theme of Hebrews, he's going to show us how Jesus is superior in every way. Now, we've already seen in Hebrews that Jesus is superior to, what was the first spoke of our hub that we looked at? Jesus is superior to the angels. And then in chapters 3 and 4, he went down another spoke after he returned to that hub of Jesus being superior. And he saw, we saw how Jesus is superior to... Moses. And then he came back and, and we saw last week how he's setting us up for this next major section of the book of Hebrews. And so we're going to start off on that hub today, that, uh, that spoke of the wheel today and continue to examine how Jesus is superior not just to the angels, not just to Moses, but he's also superior to Aaron and the entire high priesthood of Israel. You see, this sermon was originally addressed to a community that was being tempted. They were being tempted to return to a system of Jewish law that was based in Jerusalem. It was a religion that had, had lost the heart of what God intended for the law to be and how it was supposed to be implemented. And it had devolved into this system of rules and regulations and, and sacrifices and ceremonies that was led by a group of human priests that were doing so in a way that, that led people away from the Gospel rather than to a Gospel of grace. And that's the problem that Jesus ended up confronting in His lifetime when the Pharisees were so focused on their own works. Hebrews intends to show his audience that Jesus is superior to anything else that we try to put in his place. Now I understand that as we're going through Hebrews, uh, most of you aren't tempted to, to go back to Jerusalem and start sacrificing goats and rams next, next week. That's, that's not typically where most of us came out of. But there are things in your life where, where you, there is something else competing for that place in your heart. And, and and it may not be a system of worship where you go to a high priest and a priest who makes a sacrifice for you and, and, and examines a sore on your arm to see if you have leprosy and, and everything else that we find in Leviticus. But there's a lot of other things that, that occupy your mind 
that occupy the energy of your life, that occupies your money, and you devote yourself to those things. Some of them are really good things. But some of those things have taken the place, as good as they are in life, they've taken the place of Jesus Christ and you've begun to worship them more than you do the Savior who bought you with His blood. And so understand that Hebrews is just as pertinent for you not only because of the theology and the things that we're going to learn about the high priesthood that applies to our life, but also because as we examine how Jesus is superior to all of these things, understand that that thing, that something in your life that's competing for your worship, Jesus is superior to that as well. And He deserves first place. And so in chapter 5, we come to the heart of Hebrews. Uh, if you will, this is the main course. Chapters 1 and 2, that was just the appetizer. The angels, and he's superior to angels and some cool stuff that he does with stringing pearls. And, and we got to chapters 3 and 4, and we saw how Jesus is superior to Moses, and that was the soup and salad. But chapter 5 through 10, guys, this is the steak. And, and we're going to start, we're gonna start uh, cutting away here this next few weeks. The author of Hebrews has given us everything else in order to lead us to this point in the epistle. And this is the heart of the message. And what he wants to show us is that Jesus is the great high priest. Not just a great high priest, but that He is superior to Aaron. He is superior to Zadok. He is superior to Hilkiah. He is superior to Joshua and Caiaphas and every other high priest that Israel ever had serving over it. Jesus is superior to all of the high priests. And 2,000 years later, you and I need to understand that Jesus is still, still superior to anything else and anyone else who is tempting you to worship anything other than Jesus Christ. So let's jump into our passage and first look at the four qualifications. Four qualifications that Hebrews lays out for us. What are the qualifications for a person to be a high priest? And understand, these aren't just qualifications for Jesus as our high priest, but these are, qual these are the basic criteria that any high priest in the Old Testament system would have had to go through. There's a lot of other things that you want to look at, like their integrity, their education, their qualities, their training, but, but these things are the basic fundamentals that, that qualify or disqualify a person before you even start to look at their education and experience. Number one, they must be chosen from among men. First of all, the high priest was chosen from among men. Back in Exodus, when the high priesthood was first being set up, if you remember, Moses went up on the mountain and he received the law and he came down and, and, and God instructed Moses and he says, call Aaron and his sons from among the people. And the point was clear that the priests had to be a part of the people of Israel. God, God didn't choose angels to represent Israel. That would have been kind of cool. You, know, you go to you go to um, synagogue or you go to the temple on Saturdays and, and, and who do you see? There's just giant angelic being with angels or there's one over there that's just on fire. And, and um, that'd be kind of a cool way to worship. But that's not what God set up. He, he didn't want some beings that, that didn't, weren't representative of the people. And He didn't choose animals to represent the people, but He chose men from among Israel because they had solidarity with the people. Uh, the high priest, and, and any priest for that matter, he had to be able to identify with the people. Listen to how Hebrews expresses this. In verse 1 he says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. And so the first qualification was that, that he, he needed to come from among men. He needed to have solidarity. It was a must in order to serve as the high priest. He must originate from among the people. The second qualification flows right out of the first one. Verse 1 continues. says, He is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. On a daily basis, these men would serve as representatives. They would, they would act on behalf of other people before God. They were intermediaries. intermediaries. And so if you want to, to make a sacrifice... Um, you know, let's say Andrew and I, and we say, you know, we, we just want a fellowship offering. You know what the fellowship offerings are? It, it wasn't necessarily a sacrifice for my sins, but it was something where we, where we enjoyed our fellowship with one another. We enjoy our fellowship with God. We enjoy our fellowship with the priest who makes the sacrifice. And so what we would do is we take this lamb, we take it down to the tabernacle. I said, no, and, and I say, Andrew, let's, let's just, let, let's skip that whole process. 
Why go down to the tabernacle when I've got a good sharp knife right here and a good barbecue? And let's just have a barbecue today. So what do we do? We do our fellowship offering in the backyard. And God says, no, 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 no. That's not, that's not how we do things here. That's not how the Old Testament priesthood worked. And Andrew reminds me, he says, no, we need, we need to go down to the priesthood for this fellowship offering. It's not a fellowship offering. It's just a barbecue without it. And so the fellowship offering, we're celebrating the fellowship that we have in God. We're celebrating the fellowship that we have with one another. And we go to the tabernacle and, he, and they make that sacrifice and the priest gets to keep his part and they burn part of it on the altar. And then Andrew and I take the rest of it and we, we gather our families together and we have a great party and we celebrate this fellowship. That's what the fellowship offering was supposed to be. And so all these different sacrifices would come together, but it was the priest who represented the people before God in the Old Testament system. And that Old Testament priest would function as an intermediary between God and men, and they would play a role in bridging that context between the people and between their God in heaven. Very specifically, the high priest had a very particular function and role that he played and acted out before them. Not, not only he was the, the leader of all the priests, but once a year he made a special offering. Does anybody remember what, day that, what that day was called? The Day of Atonement. There's two other names we know that day by. Anybody, bonus, bonus points if you know these. Yom Kippur. All right. There's one other that you all should be really familiar with because it was just this last week. It's not a Jewish name for it, but... What's that? Not Passover. Last Wednesday was... Ash Wednesday. If you, if you uh, didn't realize, Ash Wednesday is the same day as the Day of Atonement. And so this last week, while many Christian denominations were starting Lent, which is basically the 40 days that lead up to, um, uh, to, the, to Palm Sunday, um, the Jews were celebrating the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And so this, this, on this day, every year, Ash Wednesday coincides with this holiday, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And like Ash Wednesday, Yom Kippur is a day of fasting. It's a day of mourning. It's a day of putting ashes on yourself. That's why people do that on Ash Wednesday. It's a day of national repentance for sin. But, but the Day of Atonement, it's also a day that once a year, the high priest was able to cross and go through the curtain in the temple. And when he did that, he would make an, a sacrifice. He would sprinkle blood on the... Uh, on the um, um, the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. And so he would bathe. He put on his special vestments, his special belt, his, his, um, his uh, turban, um, ephod, and a, a bull would be sacrificed as a sin offering for the priest because he had to make an offering for himself. And then they would take two goats and they would cast lots, like casting dice. And, and one goat would win and one goat would lose. Guess what the loser happened to him? Yeah. All right. Became a sacrifice. And the winner... They would take outside the camp and they'd say, okay, you're going to carry all the sins. And he, so that goat would representatively carry the sins of the people away from the camp. It was symbolic. And that goat would go off into the wilderness and be free forever. And the other goat would be sacrificed and, and his blood would be taken into that curtain, through that curtain. And so the high priest, once a year, he would pass through that curtain and, and, in the temple and he would sprinkle the blood of the bull and the goat on the mercy seat. And so the high priest would serve a very special, as a very special representative of the people to make atonement for the people. And so therefore, the second qualification of any high priest is directly tied to the first. He, he not only needed to come from among the people, but he was also chosen to represent the people. And that leads us to the third. The high priest was chosen to sympathize with the people. Hebrews expresses it in terms that he, he was also beset with weakness. That's the term that's used there in the verse. Now, that may sound strange to those of us in Western civilization. We, we don't usually think of, um, you know, I'm looking for a leader. Let's find somebody that's weak, right? That's, that's not how we, how we express it. But, but it's, it's actually not that quite of a foreign concept if you carefully think about it. Um, don't our politicians try to find places where they connect with us? They try to find things where, where we can relate to them, they can relate to us as people. Uh, don't they try to show that they're one of us and that they can understand the struggles that you've gone through because they've gone through it too? Uh, we, we like stories about the guy who, who worked as a, a dishwasher at a restaurant and he worked his way up and he, he, uh, 
he earned a living just like we do at a regular wage. And so you go, this is a guy who can represent me. This is a guy who understands what I go through. And so that same concept of, of, of being weak and going through the same struggles that we do in life is something that we do value. We just don't express it quite like Hebrews does. We want somebody that understands the difficulties that we uh, are living in a tough economy. Um, so who would you rather represent you? Someone who has so much money that they've never understood what it means to struggle? Or would you rather be represented by somebody who's been down in the trenches where you've been and they know what you're going through? What it means to live from paycheck to paycheck. Uh, you, you want somebody that can represent you like that. In the same way, the high priest was one who, according to verse 2, that he can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. And so being beset with weakness is a qualification of the priesthood in that it enabled him to be able to sympathize with the people. And God wanted the high priest to be able to relate with the people's struggle. Going back to the Day of Atonement, before the high priest could offer a sacrifice for the people, he had to make a sacrifice for himself, which is why verse 3 says, because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. Now, this doesn't mean that any high priest has to sin in order to qualify. That's, that's not how it says it, does it? All right? It doesn't mean that he, he has to be uh, one who goes out and before he makes a sacrifice, before he does all the work of a high priest, he needs to go make sure he sinned once that year. That, that's not the point that he's trying to make. The quality that the Lord is focused on here is that he needs to be beset with weakness in the sense that he's able to deal gently with those that he represents. We saw last week in Hebrews that Jesus does do this, and Jesus does make this, meet this qualification. And so he kind of gave us a little bit of a, a foretaste of these qualifications back in verse 15 in chapter 4. He said, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so every time you go through a temptation, every time you go through those struggles and, and, and that, that website calls to you or that person calls to you or you're at your job and you're faced with the decision and you know this is wrong and, and it's, it's eating away at you, that, that struggle to, to fight that temptation and to resist that temptation, Jesus has been there. He knows what that feels like more so than we do because He completely resisted that temptation and never gave into it, which means that temptation just became more and more intense in a way that none of us have completely experienced as He did. And so He understands our struggle. And that's going to be very important as we'll, and we'll come back to that concept of Jesus being made perfect in His weakness. Which includes the reality that He was tempted just like we are. But there's a fourth qualification as well. And it's simply this. The high priest must be chosen by appointment. He has to be chosen and appointed to the position. And the Old Testament made it very clear that the office of the high priest wasn't open to candidates who received votes from the people. The high priest and his successors were chosen by God Himself. And so in the Old Testament, Aaron, the brother of Moses, and Aaron's four sons, they were chosen as this priesthood. And the high priest himself was Aaron, and then he was succeeded by his sons, and then their sons after them. And this mantle was passed on, not to the other 11 tribes of Israel. It wasn't passed on to the other, the other clans within the tribe of Levi. And even at that, the high priesthood was never just given to any Levite, but it was specifically for Aaron and all of his sons for generation after generation after generation, all the way up until the days of Jesus and the days that Hebrews was being written. There was still a high priest in Israel, and they were always from that family of Aaron's descendants. And it remained within that family by God's appointment. Okay, now I know we're doing lots of Old Testament details today, but, but are you following, following me up to this point? There's a few times when people tried to overthrow that system. I can think of three examples in the, in the Old Testament where, where the people in the Old Testament said, you know, okay, Aaron, you know, you're all right and your sons are all right, but we think that there's a better way. Uh, the first one comes in Numbers chapter 16. If you're familiar with the story of Korah, we call it Korah's Rebellion. And Korah came forward 
with 250 influential uh, chiefs, well-known, uh, highly regarded people from among Israel. People that were respected by the Israelites. And basically, they protested God's choice that the, high, that the high priest came from Aaron's family. And they said, look, Moses, we're all holy. We're all chosen by God. We're all part of this nation called Israel. And so this thing where your brother gets to be the high priest, we don't like that system. Even if God's the one who appointed it. And they blamed Moses for it, and they blamed Aaron for it, and they said, we think that we should be able to be the high priest as well. And so, he, um, Korah and his friends, they, they tried turning it into some, some kind of democratic system where, where they voted on it, where they were appointed by the people. And Numbers goes on to tell the story of how that next day, all the people were gathered. And they, remember this is a story where they brought their staffs out and Aaron's rod budded and, and showed that, that God had chosen Aaron and his descendants. And, and then it tells us that the earth opened up. And it swallowed all 250 people and Korah and then closed up after them. And whether it was a natural earthquake or something else, it happened exactly when God said it was going to happen. It was a miraculous event. And it opened up and then it closed up and the people watched the earth swallow some of their most influential people. But because they had rebelled against God's choice. Hundreds of years later, there's another story where Saul, King Saul, he grew impatient. And there was a battle coming up. And the people were starting to... to, to to scatter away because they were waiting for Samuel to come offer the sacrifice. You remember this? You were just reading this last week, or a couple weeks ago. And, and so, so the, the people were starting to, to peel off and they're getting ready for battle. And Saul's going, I'm losing guys. We got to do something about this. And Samuel's not here. So he improvises. And what's Saul do? Yeah, he makes the sacrifice. He, 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 um, he calls the people around and he offers the sacrifice as blessing. And then right as he does so, Samuel shows up. What have you done? What have you done, Saul? And it was because of this. This was the final, the final blow. And God says, because of this, I've rejected you as king. The, the throne is going to be taken away from you and from your family and it's going to be given to somebody else that has a heart after my own. Somebody else that's worthy. And so Saul took matters into his own hand, and for this reason, God stripped away the kingdom from Saul and he gave it to David. A few hundred years later, after that, we have another, guy, another king, King Uzziah. Uh, it was during the days of Isaiah, if you remember. And King Uzziah, he was actually a godly king. This was a king that, that uh, I think Chronicles said he, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And uh, he was a king who grew proud, though. And so he went into the temple and he also usurped the role of the priests. And all he did was he offered incense at the altar. Not something he was supposed to do. It was the priestly role. And what, what happened to him? Broke out in leprosy. The priest like, get out, get out, get out. And he ran as fast as he could because he realized he was under the judgment of God. Immediately this leprosy broke out on him and he dealt with that leprosy for the rest of his life. And all of these illustrate how seriously the Lord took this, that the high priest had to be chosen by appointment from God Himself. And now that creates a problem for Jesus, doesn't it? What's the problem that Jesus has? He's not from the family of Aaron. He's not even from the tribe of the Levites. What tribe did Jesus come from? Judah. Jesus comes from the tribe of the kings. And so as far as His human qualifications, He in no way was qualified to be a high priest according to the order of the Aaron, we call it the Aaronic priesthood. He wasn't the son of Aaron. So that creates a little bit of a problem for Jesus because He comes from the wrong tribe. Wouldn't He be just as guilty of the same violation that brought the curses down on Korah, on, on Saul and Uzziah? And so now you see the basic qualifications that are set forth. And now Hebrews is going to deal with those qualifications and whether Jesus meets those qualifications or not. And so here's the basic four qualifications that he covers. Uh, not only for Jesus, but these are, high, these are qualifications for any high priest. He needs to be, number one, chosen from among men. Number two, he needs to, be, he needs to represent the people. He needs to be chosen to sympathized with the people, beset with weakness in the terms of Hebrews chapter 2, verse, excuse me, verse 2. 
Um, and he needs to be chosen by appointment, divine appointment. So how does Jesus stack up? Does he meet the qualifications that make him the best candidate to be our high priest? Well, we're going to look at the interview in just a moment. Hebrews is going to, if you will, he's going to bring Jesus to the interview process. And uh, he's going to do that in just a minute. But before Hebrews turns his attention there, what the author is first going to do is he's going to take us back to two very important passages that he covered back in, Psalm, in, in Hebrews chapter 1. And these are messianic psalms. That means they're psalms that prophesied the coming of the Messiah. In fact, the, these two psalms seems to contradict each other to some extent because during the days between the Old Testament and the New Testament, people recognized that these were Messianic Psalms and there was actually a group that said maybe the Messiah is not one person. Maybe the Messiah is two people because how can he, the Messiah be a priest if, he comes from, if he's not from the tribe of, of, um, of, of, of Levi and, and the family of Aaron? And how can he be a king if he's not from the tribe of Judah? And so a lot of people assumed that there would be two Messiahs that would fulfill both of those roles. And what Hebrews is going to show us is that one person fulfills it, and it's Jesus. And he does so beautifully by taking two parallel passages, two passages that, that go side by side with one another. And, and as I mentioned, he introduced them in Hebrews, in chap, Hebrews chapter 1. And here in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 5, Hebrews is going to start to tackle this problem of how Jesus can be a priest when he doesn't come from the house of Aaron or from the tribe of Levi. And remember that that fourth qualification, it's not that that a, high, a, a priest or a high priest has to come from that tribe, but rather the qualification is that they must be chosen by divine appointment. And so, is Jesus in some way chosen by God even though He doesn't come from that tribe of Aaron? Let's look at verse 5. In verse 5 He says, "...so also Christ did not exalt Himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by Him who said to Him..." Now, pause right there. Here, here's the point. Did Jesus come like Korah and lead a rebellion against the priests of Israel to usurp their authority? Did He come into Jerusalem and say, I, I'm taking this? He didn't, did He? Uh, did He come like Saul? Did He come like Uzziah in pride? Did He exalt Himself and make Himself a high priest? None, none of that. But He was chosen by God Himself and now Hebrews is going to quote Psalm chapter 2 and Psalm 110 at these passages. God said to Jesus, You are My Son. Today I have begotten You. As He says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so what Hebrews is doing is he's taking these two passages, one dealing with a passage that's talking about the Messiah as the King, and another passage is talking about this priest. He quotes from these two psalms just beautifully once again. And the first psalm points to Jesus' role as king. And it makes it very clear that Jesus isn't just any king, as the man, um, but, but this king, this king is called God's son. You are my son, the psalm said. Remember what, what happened when Jesus was baptized? What did God, say, the God the Father say to him there? This is my son, whom I am well pleased. He says, I've, I've chosen Him. So Jesus holds the ultimate royal office as the man who was chosen by God as the Son, the Messiah of Israel. He's not just some ordinary king. Jesus is the King of kings. The One who will fulfill all the prophecies that were prophesied to the family of David and in the David, Davidic covenant. But then, Hebrews quotes from Psalm 110, and he switches gears, two parallel passages, but he says, also, you are a priest. And he throws this order of Melchizedek thing at us. Can anybody explain that for me right away? All right, no, no, I'm not going to have you do that. He throws this order of Melchizedek line at us, and we're going to come back to that. Uh-oh, we're going to come back to Melchizedek. All right. If you don't know who Melchizedek is or what that has to do with Jesus being a priest, in the next couple of weeks, you are going to discover that. We will come back to Melchizedek. But for now, suffice it to say that just like Psalm chapter 2 presents Jesus as the Messiah who holds the ultimate royal office, Psalm 110 presents Jesus as the Messiah who holds the ultimate priestly office. And so he's going to combine both of those roles that throughout all of the, the kingdom of Israel were, were separated. 
Hebrews introduces us to this concept that was unthinkable in all the days of Moses and the priesthood of Aaron and and all the priests that came after them, all the way up to 70 A.D. For the first time since before Mount Sinai, God joins the office of the king with the office of the priesthood. And and if that's hard to understand, I I know we're dealing with a lot of Old Testament things, and and a lot of this is going, whoa, this is heavy. Um, If you're a little confused by some of these things, here's the big idea. Jesus became the great high priest not because he grabbed the title by a revolution, but because he was chosen by God himself. And we're going to talk over this next couple chapters of how that happened. Now since Hebrews has introduced us to this idea that Jesus meets the fourth qualification, let's look at the interview itself. How does Jesus stack up? Does he meet the qualifications that make him the best candidate to be our high priest? And by way of application, does he meet the standards to be the best and superior to anything else that you try to put in his place? Let's start with verse 7. Let's look at how he's the great high priest. Number one, he says, in the days of his flesh, verse 7, stop right there. Qualification number one, was Jesus chosen from among men? Now, if you're, if you're uh, in this audience of this, this church, one of the things you might go is, well, you know, okay, so a, a priest is supposed to come from among men, but where does Jesus come from? He's God, so how can He represent us? How can He be a high priest if He's actually from heaven rather than from men? And, and Hebrews deals with that problem and says, Jesus was chosen from among men. Absolutely He was chosen from among men. In a move that surely shocked the angels of heaven, the God of the entire universe who exists, get this, outside of space, outside of time. You ever think about that about God? We think in terms, everything has to be in terms of how we relate to the space that we're in, how we relate to the time that we're in. And we oftentimes think of God as just really big, and so anywhere I go, He's there. But you have to understand that time and space are a created concept. He's outside of those things. He's outside of time. There is no time that you can go to where God is not there right now, humanly speaking. And so, the God of the entire universe who exists outside of space and time steps into space and time, and Jesus took on humanity and He camped among us. A few weeks ago, we looked at the hypostatic union and we discovered that this isn't some strange teaching about fabric sheets sticking to your clothes. It's in the person of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity became 100% human while remaining 100% divinity, deity. Jesus is fully God and fully man and those two natures are combined in Jesus Christ perfectly. And so when Hebrews talks about the days of His flesh, the author is reminding us that Jesus has solidarity with us. God chose Him not merely as being from outside of our human experience to be our great high priest, but God chose Him, chose Jesus from among men, from among us. For Jesus experienced everything that it means to be human, including temptation in its fullest form, even while He never sinned. Okay, not only was Jesus chosen from among the men, but He was also chosen to represent us. Let's keep reading. In the days of His flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to Him who was able to save Him from death. And He was heard because of His reverence. Some, some have believed that this is pointing to His prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane because he, he, he cried out there and He prayed there. But... And certainly, Jesus did pray for us there. He did act as our priest. But more likely, Hebrews here is actually alluding to Psalm chapter 22. And he's actually quoting, I think, from the Greek version of Psalm chapter 22. He uses some of the, the, the Greek words there. He, he probably has in mind Christ's suffering on the cross and His prayers that He offered while He was making atonement for us through His death. And so in the ultimate act of serving as our representative, Jesus became our substitute. He he died in our place to bear the full weight of God's wrath. Something that we remember when we partake in in communion here in just a few moments. And Jesus was so authentically human. He was so authentically our representative 
that in everything that Jesus did, He obeyed God. He obeyed God the Father. He showed reverence to God. And Hebrews tells us that God heard Jesus' prayer. Though He gave His body in death, He of course was delivered out of death and and gloriously He rose from the dead. Jesus perfectly completed God's will in all of this. Jesus represented humanity perfectly. And He continues to represent us, as we'll see in chapter 7, and represents us in in, in heaven today. So does Jesus meet the first qualification? Yep, He goes there and back some. Does He meet the second qualification? Absolutely. Better than any individual that has ever existed on the face of the earth. Third, Jesus was chosen to sympathize with us. He did not need to sin in order to understand our weakness. Thus, Jesus did not need to offer a sacrifice for Himself. But as we discovered in chapter 4, verse 15, He fully experienced the weight of temptation. Not only in the wilderness when He was being tempted for 40 days and 40 nights, but understand the temptation that's described there in that period was a temptation. Those are temptations that Jesus experienced throughout His entire life. The temptations didn't stop when the angels came and ministered to Him. They kept on coming over and over and over again throughout all of His ministry. He fully experienced temptation in every way that we do, and and He did so throughout His lifetime. But verse 8 expresses that not only does He sympathize having experienced temptation, but although although He was a son, verse 8, He learned obedience through what He suffered. And being made perfect, He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. So Hebrews often speaks of Jesus being made perfect through obedience. And again, this is not saying that Jesus was imperfect before He became a man. It's not saying that He became a man and in some way He he was lacking in moral qualities. That's not the point that Hebrews is trying to make. But rather, what it's saying is that by fully obeying God the Father, by fully obeying God the Father in heaven, even to the point of death on a cross, Jesus perfectly completed God's plan for him. He perfectly carried out his mission and he did it to the very end. And so by doing that and by obeying God even to the point of death on the cross, in this way, he lived out humanity. He lived perfectly this human life. He perfectly represented us and and having experienced obedience through suffering, Jesus now perfectly is able to sympathize with you and me. Like other high priests, Jesus was beset with weakness. Not in that He sinned, but that He experienced life to the full and what it means to suffer to the full. What it means to be tempted to the full. But finally, and again, He meets the fourth requirement more perfectly than any other priest before Him. And verse 10 repeats, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Again, Jesus didn't take the priesthood. He didn't rebel or lead a coup or grab the position in pride, but rather God chose him as our great high priest. Once again, God did so, not in the way that the Old Testament saints would have expected. I, I think most of the Old Testament saints, okay, how, how, does, how does he become a son of Aaron? And they tried making that connection in their head. And, and God says, whoa, wait a minute, I'm going to do something completely different. You just wait for this. And, and so God does something different that they didn't expect. He didn't make him a priest through Aaron's descendants, but rather God designated him as a high priest through a different line. One that combines both the role of the king and the high priest. And so he only touches on it here. And we're going to stop right there because we don't have time to, to jump into chapter, chapter 6 and the rest of chapter 5. But here's what he's going to do, so just so you know what to expect going forward. So he started this whole section about Jesus being the great high priest. And he's introduced us to the qualifications. He's walked us through the interview to show us how Jesus meets those qualifications. And he's going to fill out that that whole concept and talk to us about Melchizedek. But he recognizes that his audience doesn't understand who Melchizedek is. Some of you may be in that same boat. Go, who's this Melchizedek guy? And so he's going to interrupt all that and say, you guys, you need, you need to pay attention here. You need to know God's Word. And so he's going to take a whole chapter. Think of chapter 6 as a big parenthesis. And he's going to explain all this to them because, because they hadn't been doing their Bible study and they, they weren't ready for chapter 7 yet. And so he has to stop and pause to, to walk them through this process. And, and we're going to walk through that as well. 
The author of Hebrews recognizes that his audience wasn't ready to talk about Melchizedek yet, and so he's going to have some choice words for them. We're going to have the third warning, and that third warning takes a whole chapter long, and then he's going to pick up in chapter 7 right where he leaves off from here in verse 10. Now we're going to see over this next few weeks the amazing ramifications of what it means to have Jesus as our high priest. That, that's really the heart of Hebrews. But I'd like to conclude with this today. I want you to understand that Jesus perfectly meets the qualifications that were set up by God Himself, and then some. Not only does Jesus meet the qualifications, but He comes into the interview, if you will, with the picture, and He resets the entire tone of the job itself. He not only comes and says, yeah, I meet those qualifications, but he completely redefines what that position is. And you look at this guy and go, how are we going to pay this guy? Because he is so overqualified. Uh, whoa! We'll hire him anyway, right? He not only does the work of a high priest, but he perfectly joins the office of a king to the office of the priest and the office of the prophet together. And Jesus serves as a high priest like no high priest ever before him. Now for this small church that this letter is being written to in Hebrews, again, there were those who were being tempted to fall away. And the specific temptation that they were facing was to go back to Jerusalem and to go to the high priest that was down there, a guy named Joshua probably at this time. And we're going we're gonna to go back to that system. We're going to keep on making sacrifices. And we're going we're gonna to go to the synagogue every week. And we're going to do all these things that relate to this old system with human priests and perpetual sacrifices day after day and year after year and Yom Kippur after Yom Kippur. And over and over and over again, the Hebrews, Hebrews is going to show us that Jesus is superior to all of that. And I ask a question that we've considered before. But what is it that's tempting you to go back to those old ways? Not to offering sacrifices, not to going down to Jerusalem and having a priest to do this and that for you. But what are the things in your life today where you're going, there's something else. And it calls to me. You can picture it right now in your head. There's a temptation there probably in your head. You're going, I, I love this. And I'm investing money in this. And I'm investing time in this. Maybe there's several somethings. And, and in and of themselves, they're not all that bad, some of them. Some of them are bad, and you need to completely repent of it. But some of those things are just good hobbies that you have or a person that you love. And they're taking the place of Jesus Christ in your life. What are the old ways that are calling at you saying, worship me instead of Jesus? What are the sins that are at your doorstep that you're struggling with? What are the forms of worship that are challenging you to choose that over Christ who was appointed by God? What are the some things that are claiming that they can be a substitute for the one, Jesus, who is everything? With Him as our high priest, let us learn obedience and follow Him as He walked obediently. Let us obey Him through faith and rejoice that we serve one who knows our weakness. He knows that struggle that you're facing. You, again, maybe you pictured that thing in your head, that something that's taking His place. I want you to understand that, that this isn't just some blanket command, walk away from it by your own strength. Do this. I want you to understand that your high priest is interceding for you right now. Your high priest, Jesus, He understands what you're feeling in this very moment when, when your pastor's telling you, get rid of this thing that you're worshiping. He gets it. He's been there. And he loves you. And He's tender with you. And He's walking with you through it. He's one who we serve, who knows our weakness, and thus can deal gently. Best Jared and the men to come forward. We're going to celebrate communion now. And as we do so, it's an opportunity for us to be thankful for the high priest that we serve and that we love who does deal gently with us and has sacrificed for Himself in this way. Well, so often we attempt to fool ourselves into to thinking that we can earn our salvation. That if we do the right things, we say the right things, uh, that we will be able to atone for our sins, that we'll be able to, to bridge that divide that's between us 
and the Father. Uh, but you and I, we, we, can never, we can never be good enough on our own. We are sinners. But even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The love of God that resulted in his son being sent into this world to heal that divide, it's, it's overwhelming. Communion is a time when we are able to reflect on what was accomplished through Jesus Christ on the cross. And if you are here today and you are a follower of Jesus, I invite you to participate with us. Regardless of whether or not you are a member here at Duity Free, all Christians are welcome and encouraged to participate. And if you're sitting there thinking, you know, I, I don't know if I've ever done that. I don't know if I've ever taken that step. Consider this an opportunity to repent, to turn to him to participate in this holy sacrament with us. In a moment, the, the deacons will distribute the bread and the cup. I ask that you um, receive that and wait, hold it, um, and then when we read together from 1 Corinthians 11, we'll pray, and then we'll eat and drink together.